museum. After he died, one of his books was published posthumously called Hegyonim Uziel, which Rabbi Uziel gave his philosophy of Judaism. And in one of his chapters, he speaks of the importance of centrism of all things before it was fashionable. He draws from the Mishlei. He quotes the following verse. Make plain the paths of your feet, that all your ways be established. Turn not to the left nor to the right. Remove your foot from evil. Rabbi Uziel argues that in order for us to live creatively and intelligently as Jews, we have to have a commitment to our national kumudah, our national charter. And the only way we can do that is if we know what that charter is, what the demand is. And it is incumbent upon every Jew, leader and not leader, to focus clearly on that path and to move into that direction. Moving to the right and moving to the left creates problems essentially unreal and unfair to real Jewish life. Moving to the left, Rabbi Uziel criticizes those who assimilate, those who move away from our religious tradition, or who interpret Judaism in a way which is not authentic. And on the other side, Rabbi Uziel is very careful in saying that Judaism cannot be constricted to a very small space. Judaism is universal and big. He says, Judaism and humanity, the Jewishness in us and the humanness in us, are connected to each other like a charcoal and a flame. Ultimately, to be a good Jew means to be a good human being. He goes further and he tells us, if we take Judaism and we constrict it, we say it only belongs in the synagogues, it only belongs in the Bet Midrash, it can only flourish in the smallest, most isolated, and most protected way, then that itself is a burial in the death of Judaism. He argues that our test as Jews is to be able to take our message into the streets, into the roads, into business, into the world. He talks about the Kiddushah of the Jewish people as being a Kiddushah which is only fulfilled not by separating ourselves from life, but by its being aware and how we deal specific. All the scientific discoveries, all the philosophical discussions, a Jew, a religious Jew, must be aware of all of the discoveries, all of the discussions, all that is creative in humanity. And in that way, a person becomes more Jewish and more understanding of his Torah. Rabbi Uziel argues that the definition of a leader in Israel is one who is well steeped in Torah and who is perfectly at home in the world in which he lives. A person who represents Kiddushah and Romanus, holiness and loftiness, grandness, grandness. I quote Rabbi Uziel because I think he was one of the very great men of our century. I quote him specifically now because I think what he said is very applicable to the person I'm introducing tonight, Dr. Norman Lamb. Dr. Lamb has within him this Kiddushah and Romanus, the commitment to holiness 
for learning the sanctity of piety and slime level, as well as the Roman movement, this universalism, ability to have disordered all disciplines, comfort for the humanity, comfort to the world. I don't need to give you the whole credentials of Dr. Lamb. I only will say one thing about him. That they were very, very, very few people that I know. Dr. Poole is genuinely a pious man, genuinely, genuinely a very great man. And the greatest privilege of this convention for me to be able to introduce him tonight. so many organizations that are really so close to each other, and yet we've never gotten together. So that seeing all of us here together, each maintaining his and her own organizational identity, yet cooperating so smoothly, so pleasantly, I am moved to open my words at this historic occasion with uh, an expression of thanksgiving to the Ramona Shalom, Shehechiyonu, Vichiyamanu, Vichiyonu, Lazmanazer. And my first comment will be on that, brother. It's always bothered me. Shehechiyonu, I understand. God let us live through so many years of persecution, of material and physical obstacles. Vichiyonu, I understand. He let us reach this day despite the many spiritual, cultural, psychological difficulties. What is Kiyamanu? He let us exist. Certainly if we live and we reach and we exist, one does not exist, one does not either live or reach. It's been suggested, and I commend this to your attention, that the word Kiyamanu is really a halachic term. The Kiyamanu comes from the word Kiyum. And in Halacha, that is the word for the affirmation or authentication of a document, of a star, Kiyum stars. So when you say Kiyamanu, that means that the Rabbana Shalom has justified and authenticated our approach, our mission, and our derrick. For the last 50 or more years, savants and sages and sociologists and social philosophers and communal machers have predicted the imminent demise of Orthodox Judaism and the disappearance of the Orthodox Jewish community as a significant part of North American Jewry. But we are here to say, we are here. By the grace of the Almighty, the Kiyomonu, he has, through history, vindicated our essential outlook and so we're very much alive, if beset by problems. 
and very much vigorous, if more than a bit contentious. And what greater reason to thank him than for legitimating who and what we are. And indeed, it is appropriate here at the beginning, really beginning of this weekend of, of conferring, to ask two questions to which I intend to address myself this evening. First, who are we? We who have conven convened and are participating in this experience. And second, what do we want? And why have we gathered at this particular juncture of Jewish history? Who are we? How do we identify ourselves? Well, first, first we are Jews. And we are joined by a common history and common national and ethnic experience to all other Jews, no matter what their outlook, as partners in what my teacher, our teacher, the Rav Zechah has called the Bris Goro, the covenant of faith. As such, all Jewish concerns are our concerns. All the joys and the travails and the pains and the pleasures of Am Yisrael and Medina Yisrael are ours to be felt keenly and responsibly. Next, we are religious, religiously observant, orthodox Jews. We are bound by the halacha, and our aspirations are limbed in the Agoda, in the Musar, and philosophical treatises, and all the rest of the priceless literature of our Torah and our Mesorah. We are thus intimate partners with all other committed Jews in what the Rav calls this Yehud, the covenant of destiny. Finally, like all other Orthodox Jews, whether Hasidic or Mitzagdic, whether Ger or Lubavitch or Satmar, whether Ashkenazi or Sephardi, Panovich or Parati or Seth, Ulam HaYeshivas or Torah and Derecheres, we represent a significant, important, and identifiable subgroup within Shlome Emunah Yisrael with whom we may share some perceptions, as indeed they may share some of our ideas. Consider the constituent groups that have gathered here at this conference and you will recognize our special orthodox ideology. Whether we call ourselves Dati, or modern orthodox, or centrist orthodox, or some unidentified, unidentifiable, unnamed group, and I never understood why we're not allowed to have a name on everyone else's. Whatever it be, we stand roughly for the following special ideas in addition, in addition to those maintained by all segments of the Orthodox community as part of the Torah tradition. And I'm not mentioning all of them, just a few of the features that really identify what and who we are. First, Torah or Magam. Like Orlando spoke earlier, Torah, ominous, I'm broadening that a bit. Ominous means vocation or profession. I'm speaking about the whole world of not only technology, but of science. Not only science, but culture. The belief that the primacy of Torah, which is undisputed, does not exclude all the worldly wisdom of the ages, including our own spectacular age. Our attitude to modernity is complicated, and sophisticated. It is neither, neither one of total rejection, which is impossible, 
for a total acceptance, which is both foolish and suicidal. Second, the State of Israel, as a welcome sign of Chazdei Hashem after the agonies of the Shoah. Some may consider it Reishis Tzmichas Du'ulaseinu, the beginning of the Messianic era, and others may be more modest and doubtful as to the special exact place we hold in the scope of Jewish history. But well, we are all devoted, heart and soul, to the Medina. Third, the education of the Jewish woman. We affirm the need to give a thorough grounding in Torah education to women. This policy does not issue from contemporary feminism, but from the historic decision of the Chofetz Chaim earlier, early in this century, acknowledging the necessity to provide Jewish women with a Torah education not inferior to the secular education they were receiving. Next, inclusiveness as opposed to exclusiveness, limited only by halachic restrictions, real halachic restrictions, and common sense. Our preference is to include rather than exclude Jews in our conception of Claudius Royal and the circle of our fraternal concern. Then there is what I prefer to call moderation and civility. In the formulation of our public communal policy and the conduct of our disagreements with other Jews, whether as individuals or organizations, we hope <coughs> that more is gained by mutual respect than by mutual abuse, more by civility than by invective, more by self-restraint than by self-righteousness, more by moderation than by malice. We reserve the right, of course, to advocate our positions with passion and criticize, if indeed is necessary, even with indignation, but always with courtesy and with respect. These, but not necessary, all of them for each individual, are some of the principles that characterize our vision and mark us as a distinct and special group within orthodoxy. But in order for us to realize this grand vision and be effective, we must attend immediately to a serious discomforting problem that often plagues too many of us, and that is a loss of collective self-confidence. For leaders, and we are gathered here as leaders, that's the name of the conference, that can often be a fatal defect. Allow me to share with you, friends, what I told the last convention of the Rabbinical Council of America in June here in this hotel. The great threat to our leadership role, and perhaps its most fundamental cause, is our own self-doubt. We suffer from an inner failure of philosophic nerve. We have been bullied into doubting our own shita the one on which we have built our personal and professional lives. Whether one or another of the sides that surround us shouts loud enough and long enough, we begin to wonder if maybe, just maybe, we were all wrong all along, that others are right and we are in error. And there's nothing more deadly than that kind of pernicious self-doubt. It kills a person's initiative, his dignity, and finally, his integrity. There is a time for self-questioning. I'm not, I'm not a great believer in being dogmatic. 
There certainly is a time for self-questioning, even for a degree of self-doubt. It's the only way to intelligently examine and analyze a problem and an approach. But now is not such a time. The kind of Yiddishkeit we stand for must be reasserted dafka when it is assaulted. You know, the word Shema and Shema Yisrael has an ayin abosi, a large ayin. And the question is asked, why in writing the Torah is there necessarily a large ayin? The Shemesh of the explains, the ayin is large to emphasize it, so that no one should mistake the ayin for another. Because Shema with an ayin means here. Shema with an aleph means Shema. Shema Yisrael Hashem Elokeinu Hashem Maybe Israel God is one, and the God is our God, the Lord is our God. And there's a world of difference between Shema and Shema. Shema means maybe, perhaps, is a sign of self-doubt, of hesitation, of dividends. And such Shema is the very opposite of Shema, which connotes a kind of commanding certainty and rightness. Now we are attacked on the one side for being stubbornly true to this ancient heritage, supposedly marking us as cavemen, not being part of the modern culture, as Neanderthals, united advocates of a narrow-minded, anti-democratic intolerance. And at the same time, we are assailed from the other side, disqualifying, delegitimating us, saying that we are not authentically orthodox. But friends, no matter where the attacks come from, we must have the strength and the courage to proclaim Shema for our principles, Shema and not Shema, confidence and not diffidence. Kenneth Clark concluded his great work called Civilization by stating, it is lack of confidence more than anything else that kills the civilization. Well, if we have all our lives cherished as our interpretation of our, quote, civilization, unquote, if what we have cherished is to thrive and to flourish, then we've got to rid ourselves of the Shema stance and return to a firm and self-respecting Shema attitude. Because you know, we have accomplished a great deal. And no matter how much others may take credit for it, you should know that in addition to the founding of Torah and Messiah, which Dr. Landis spoke about, we have and can be proud of having accomplished so very much on this continent before the post-war migrations to this country. We've done it in Jewish education. We've done it in kashras. We've done it in building mikvahs and shuls and national organizations and an infrastructure for the entire Orthodox community, along with fulfilling our obligations to the larger Jewish community. This conference, then, is a time for us to reaffirm our faith in our most fundamental principles and to confirm our confidence in the correctness of our cause. Whether we are assailed by right or left, we must stand up with strength and friends. We have got to have both the courage of our convictions and the conviction of our courage. Let me now address the second of the two questions I posed. What do we want and why are we gathered here? We want three things, I think. <coughs> We want to save as much as possible of the Jewish world in this hour of its crisis. Second, 
We want to improve our own Orthodox community and consult with each other on how we can contribute to the vision of the Am HaNetzlach living creatively in this and the next century which is just about us in accordance with the highest precepts and aspirations taught to us by Holy Torah. And third, to create better conditions for peaceful cooperation by all those so dedicated in the entire Orthodox community. Let's go and take them one by one. What can we as Orthodox Jews, what can we contribute to saving the Jewish world right now? The progress we Orthodox Jews have made in the last several decades is cause for hope and for optimism, as I just said. But friends, by no means, by no means is it a cause for euphoria, for triumphalism, or for institutional self-righteousness. We've got to remember that we are still a minority. I'm not a sociologist. If I did, I could bamboozle you and confuse you with statistics more professionally. But what are we, 5% of the Jewish population? 10%? 8%? Even in New York, we are told we are only 14% of the Jewish population. The fact is that the North American Jewish community I'm not speaking about the smaller communities in Europe or Africa or elsewhere, South America, is in a process of dissolution. 53% of American Jewry is marrying out. You know, since that data came out, 53% has become a numbing number, like 6 million. You hear it so often that after a while you begin to accept it as a fact of life and there's nothing you can do about it. And that would be tragic. And anyone who finds pleasure in that self-evident proof of the bankruptcy of Jewish secularism or reform in its various manifestations is a fool or worse. These are our brothers and sisters and our cousins, the children and the grandchildren and the great-grandchildren of Guti Eden, of our grandparents, who are being lost to us forever. And this horrendous, this horrendous level of outmarriage is only a symptom of a wholesale assimilation of all North American Jewry. The disappearance of whole Jewish communities by assimilation is not unknown in Jewish history. But on this massive scale of millions, it is unprecedented. Moreover, this assimilation, to my mind, is exacerbated by what it is that our fellow Jews are assimilating into. When I was a young rabbi in Springfield, Mass, way back in the, in the 50s, or latter part of the 50s, I met a man who then was very famous as a great Jewish author, a general author, Ludwig Lewison, gentleman, an elderly gentleman then. And he had dinner at our home, and we were talking, and he said, you know, young man, young rabbi, he called me, you know, young rabbi, you know what the trouble with American Jewry is? It's not that it's assimilating. Assimilation is a fact of nature. The problem is we are not assimilating on the level of William James and Dewey. We are assimilating on the level of Hollywood and pulp novels. That's the problem with American Jewry. What is it that we are assimilating? Well, I want to tell you something. Ludwig Lewison would have been shocked out of his boots if he were here today and realized that the Hollywood and Pulp novels of them is infinitely higher than what it is our children and grandchildren and we 
are, are assimilating into today. Listen to the experts. And it all came out within the last couple of weeks. In the American Scholar, there is an article by Senator Moynihan. He writes in the, the name of the, of the article, Defining Deviancy Down. Deviancy, the polite word, we call it immorality, have reached such staggering proportions that we practice denial. And if you think of it, I'm not going to go into all details, but think about it, you'll see what happens. We define the deviant actions as normal, so that our society now appears as a normal society. And you know, not all societies are normal. Eric Fromans wrote a book called The Sane Society, built on a Freudian idea that entire societies can be insane. But we define these deviant behaviors, these aberrations as normal, so that makes us normal. Unmarried mothers, wide-scale abortion, illegitimacy, crime, welfare dependency, um, mental illness, homelessness, sexual aberrations of the most picturesque kind, all of these are now considered routine. And in some cases, the sacrosanct privilege of those who choose these, quote, alternate ways. And just after that article appeared, in a, the recent or most, one of the recent issues of the New Republic, Charles Krauthammer tells the rest of the story, the other side of the story. Moynihan wrote about taking deviancy, what we as in our innocence thought was deviancy and declaring it normal. Now Kradhammer shows how the same cultural changes have taken what we consider normal and labeling it deviant. And look, pornographic speech. Pornographic speech is now acceptable, except for feminists. Politically incorrect speech is horrifying. And if you call someone a behemoth because he or she wakes you up in the middle of the night, you're a racist in public. <laughs> Child abuse has now been discovered, and now every person with a complaint about life is declared to be a victim of child abuse, whether or not it actually occurred, because of a, an ideological reason. Because the family is now presumed to be the hotbed of all evil. So gays are honest, and straights are hypocrites, and so the list goes on and on and on. Now, this is an earth-shaking change in moral perception. It means that from a Jewish point of view, our general society is sinking rapidly in the quicksand of depravity. Consider that only a few days ago, I, I saw it in the, the Sunday Times, I still can't believe it. But the Times says it, that means it's fact. Huh? <laughs> because, and only because of the criticism of the State Health Commissioner of New York, the Board of Regents deferred a vote on a proposal which, amongst other things, encourages teachers of grades four to six to talk openly with their students, and this means non-value speech, about non-standard varieties of sexual congress. The Pitzalach of 10 years old. And this, my friends, this is the society into which most of our fellow American Jews are willfully assimilating, either without a second thought or with joyful enthusiasm, jumping into this muck of depraved conduct. And the rabbi said it better. 
You have followed the worst of the Goyim, not the best. And there's even biblical precedent for this awful situation. Am Yisrael frequently backslided into Avodah Zarah, into paganism. And Moshe was upset with them, understandably. But there was one incident at which he was a man of unrestrained fury. And that was when they began to use the King James, lovely English, go a whoring after the Baal Peor idol. That was the worst. 24,000 of Am Yisrael were killed because of that incident. Because I'll say, Zub Zera Kosha Min It was a worse thing than the Egal Hazar, the golden calf. Why so? Good reason for it. Because the Baal Peor was not only an idol like all other idols, a Getje the Alde Getje. No, a peculiarly disgusting one, which I can't even describe. I can't do it in public. Its cult involved a form of worship which was revolting, nauseating, appallingly loathsome. And to give up Avodas Habara Yisbara for something as abominable and odious as this was far worse than assimilation to the ordinary pagan culture. And that's what's happening to us. It really is. So to return to our contemporary era, what I find especially shocking, and it pains me to have to speak this way about fellow Jews, is the way that reform has reacted to this cataclysm that hangs over the heads of the Jewish community like some malevolent, <coughs> miasmic, mushroom cloud of ethnic extinction. First, it cashes non-Jews as Jews by the sleight of hand of patrilinealism, the Jewish equivalent of Moynihan defining deviancy down. Now, reform temples have welcomed not patrilineal Jews, but honest to goodness, genuine Goyim, even according to the patrilineal halacha. As full, I'm quoting now, I'm quoting, as full members, as officers of the congregation, as religious school teachers, and as ritual participants. That means that Goyim can now make brochus and wear a talus and, and do all, make kiddush and light candles, etc., for everybody else. Uh, I'm quoting from the quarterly, the most recent issue. I have a lot of time recently to read all this stuff. Writing in the quarterly of the reform movement, one of their own faculty members courageously protests and says, fellows, when will we begin to hear demands that not only should Christians be given full equality in the reform temple, but also, at least up to a point, so should Christianity. And so reform, tragically, is not only mindlessly marching its members into total assimilation to the deviant culture, its contemporary equivalent of the Baal Par, but may also be preparing to open their temples to the gospel of Shmad. One is hard put to say which of the two is worse. And how sad. How very, very sad. Well, what, what can we do? What must the Jewish community as a whole do to save itself? Let me mention a number of things. First, we've got to look upon our situation with a clarity born of urgency and a truthfulness born of failure. And then we will see that nothing, 
nothing but a meaningful return to Amuna and one God can guarantee our posterity. There will be neither Jewish identity nor Jewish continuity without Judaism, without Torah, without the Rebani Shalom. Sounds simple enough, elementary enough, going to be a hard sell. You must say it openly, because friends, it simply is too late to lie. It is too late to overlay the truth with a bunch of fancy fictions. It is going to be painful for our fellow Jews to hear, but there is no other cure for their futurelessness. Federations will not save us. There are such kahakasaras today that they even have to talk to the shuls. Tzedakah won't save us. Tzedakah tassel mimavis was sent to Yehidim for individuals, not for communities, not for Am Yisrael. Israel won't save us. I think Adin Steinsos was right when he said recently that the great problem is not whether there will be a Palestinian state, but whether the state of Israel will be a Jewish state. They will probably have to have our help as much as we need their help. Summer camps, organized trips to Israel, all other such ideas are okay and valuable taken in the context of real education. But as gimmicks, they are going to be failures. Only a return to genuine religion will ensure our continuity. And by religion, I mean nothing but Judaism. And by Judaism, I mean Torah. And by Torah, I mean the halacha is accepted not as a guide, but as authority. So the first principle in saving Yahadus is an unfortunate one. And that is, Ein lo no ein ela When the doctor tells you that you have to rely on God, you know that you're in trouble. Our condition is, we have nothing to rely upon but God. Of course, we have to go about helping people to understand that. That's our job. But that is the only way to do that. Second, we have got to rethink the nature of the Jewish people in the diaspora. We Orthodox Jews must help re-educate our people to think of ourselves, to think of ourselves no longer as a kind of infinitely malleable, totally plastic ethnic group that can and ought chameleon-like fit ourselves in and adjust to every and any cultural and moral situation we find. We have got to see ourselves as our people have seen themselves through their eyes throughout the ages. We are a protest people. You know, the Goyim understood this better than we did. Many of the leading, especially Catholic thinkers of this century, have seen us as a protest people, and they have appreciated it. We are in, but not of, the environing culture. We have to hold up a different standard for our contemporaries, without resigning from society, by any means. We've got to remain psychologically and spiritually the perpetual outsiders, affirming what is noble, helping to develop it in the larger society, but rejecting what is ugly and evil. The great teacher of Musa of Simcha, Zislav Kelm, said that this was the very thing that the fathers of our people came to teach. You know that Abraham is, is uh, the embodiment of Bushmita, of Chesed. Yitzchak is Yira. Yaakov is Emes, Emes to Yaakov. Why? Why so? What does this mean? He said, if you look at it, it's very simple. Avram was chesed. In what kind of society did he live? Who were his friends? Who were his neighbors? Sodom. 
the epitome of cruelty. He was a protester. I hesitate to use the word Protestant, but he was a person of protest, a mismagin. He came out against it. The, the culture was Sodom, which is cruelty. I am a man of chesed. Yitzchak lived at a time where he was able to say, There is no piety here. There is no morality. Therefore, he represented Yira. He was a protest person. And Yaakov, did he have a father-in-law? Love on Vaharami. He came, he took his wife out of a home that was filled with deceit, with geneva, with, with, uh, with falsehood. And so he was a man of Emes. It is that self-definition that we need that Am Yisrael must recapture in our time. We don't have to cut out of society in order to refuse to be assimilated into it. Third is the Jewish family. Without the warm medium of a functioning and functional Jewish family, the whole Jewish Mitzvah cannot be given over to another generation. We were and are a family-centered faith. Our first father was told he would be a blessing l'chol mishpachos ba'adama. An am is only a mishpacha writ large. And if the Jewish family is in trouble, then we are all in trouble. And that means that the various commissions on Jewish identity and culture, and they're now sprouting up all over the country, including a national commission. If they're going to be serious in their work, they must recommend immediate action to do such things as provide counseling for married couples as well as prenuptial counseling to decrease the divorce rate which is galloping. We've got to engage in public education towards earlier marriages and demographic growth. We've got to help young families by offering stipends, and some of them need it badly for kosher food or for day school education. We've got to increase such stipends for larger families and encourage people to have larger families. We've got to dis discourage abortion personally with the same vigor with which some of us advocate pro-choice in the public arena. This, this means saving the Jewish family. Fourth and most important, Jewish education. This audience needs no instruction in the need for chinuch and elementary and high school education, but the various identity and continuity commissions certainly do need to learn this and learn it fast. I would plead with them, having been through so many of them. I would plead with them on your behalf. No more studies. No more surveys. No more market research. No more trying to provide employment for undernourished sociologists. <laughs> it's just too obvious what the link is between education and continuity education and assimilation. Don't drown us in process. We know the process. Damn the torpedoes that once were said, full steam ahead. Damn process. There's a way of there are things we can do immediately to help. And I tell you, better a middling cure applied quickly to a live body than a sure cure given to someone who's comatose and on his deathbed. And what even this audience needs to hear in relation to Hinoch is the importance of post-secondary Jewish education. I was not going to speak about it because I would be afraid that you would suspect me of institutional self-pleading. But since Dr. Landa broke the ice and talked already about, uh, about the need for Jewish education on the college level, no one would suspect that the two of us together would be institutional self-pleading. <laughs> I'm not going to elaborate, but let me tell you. Thomas Torek and Negev Kulam was not meant for kids. 
It was meant for college students and postgraduate students. It was meant for you and for me, for adults and entertainment, for all of us. If you think that going through high school and learning Torah is enough to last them for a lifetime, you're wrong. It will be enough. Your son will always be able to say a good master. Is it enough to sustain him as a, uh, a knower of as a layman who knows Torah for the rest of us? No, it won't. We'll go into the UFP or any other schools that were mentioned before. I'm just picking it out of the out of my out of the hat, as it were. And going to a shear once a week or twice a week or three hours a week for half an hour, is that going to, is better than nothing of our lechem brother. But if we want to have an educated laity, and if we modern Orthodox Jews want to hold our heads high, we've got to have a Torah educated laity. And it's not going to happen on one half hour a week. And the ambience of a secular college, what makes you think that any 17 or 18 year old is enough to resist what happens in contemporary college dormitories. Which leads me to my next, the last theme, what can we do to improve, or the second theme, what can we do to improve our Orthodox community? For one thing, and this flows from what I just said, we must affirm unqualifiedly the primacy of Torah, especially we who advocate and practice Torah or Mother. Torah Omada, despite all that has been said, all nonsense that has been said recently, Torah Omada does not put the two on equal footing. The validity of Mada is not despite, but because of the primacy of Talmud Torah. The study of Torah is obligatory for every individual and for every community, and without it, no one has the right to that honorific title orthodox. Next, we've got to expose ourselves to honest, regular, serious self-criticism. Not every criticism leveled at us by others should be dismissed out of hand. We are strong enough and should be honest enough to listen carefully to our critics, no matter what their affiliation. Most important is the criticism that we should have of ourselves. I'm not happy with all that our community does or has. I'm not happy with myself, certainly. I would, ask simple, I would ask each of us to ask simple questions of ourselves. Do we daven Mincha and Mara with the same regularity that we daven Chakras? Tzibur too? At least one of them? Chakras, Mincha, or Maras? Do we uh, build and maintain adequate chesed institutions that others have built? Do we value the canons of Tzniyus? as much or more than the whims of fashion designers? Are we as punctilious and punctual in setting aside time for learning as we are for tennis or bridge or swimming or jogging or whatever? Furthermore, we have got to act with Abbas Yisrael to all others, left, right, or center, and therefore, we have got to accept responsibility for our non-Orthodox brethren. I know that many of us are deeply pessimistic about the future of their future as Jews, that the majority of them have essentially, you say 53% is the majority. And who knows about the other 47%, how many of them are Hasidim? That most of them have essentially given up the ghost and are doomed to Abonaseinu Harabim to disappear in an unrivaled historic disaster. 
Professor Rebbe used to say, I have met many people who have long been dead and didn't realize it. But we have no right, morally or halachically, to despair of them. If you see a man drowning, even if you feel pessimistic about his chances for survival, you must spare no effort to, re to rescue him. Losamo del damriyaka. It holds true for the soul as well as for the body. This means that we've got to engage vigorously in outreach to the non-observant Jewish community. It's only a pity that the term outreach has now become so popular that it's been hijacked from us. And, and there are those who use the term outreach in a very restricted sense. It means to spend all your communal funds on trying to reach those who are already intermarried. Now, I can, I can sympathize with those who want to do that because of their personal pain in trying to reach those who've abandoned Yahadus and the Jewish people. But for heaven's sake, to give it priority over those who still can still remain within the Jewish community completely, they're not yet intermarried, children or adults who we can attract the Yiddish guys, who's not taken the fatal step, that doesn't make sense. You're simply not doing enough in propagating Torah and mitzvahs amongst Jews who still may give us a hearing. I've often thought, you know, the Irish have a custom, a minog, the minogatikan amongst the Irish, that at least one son in the family goes into the priesthood. The Mormons have a, their minog, that every young man or woman, I don't know about the woman, every young man must give at least two years to becoming a missionary for the Mormon church. Well, I tell you, we have got to accept the challenge. We are here today, all of our organizations. What can we do with all the creativity that a good Rebbe Shalom has given us? What can we do to devise some system not pie in the sky system that's coming and saying, send all your students out for five years. It doesn't work. What can you do to develop some system that is effective, that responds to the challenge of idealism and the stimulus of working for a noble cause that will work and help us make our contribution to pie?